The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 3rd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we are counting down the Fox News personalities who have not been accused of sexual harassment. There's Shepard Smith. There's Sean Hannity. I didn't find any actual accusations against him, though he's a strong defender against all his colleagues who have been accused. Now listen, an accusation is neither proof nor a formal charge. I'm just saying. Well, let's take Roger Ailes, the big boss, kind of the Bill Cosby of conservatism. He reportedly encouraged women that he had his eye on to date older conservative men. Go ahead. Get out there. Get to know us. I think you'll like us. Supply cider on the streets. No one wilder in the sheets. I assume he meant economically conservative men that these aspirational young women should date because, you know, all the good Christian conservatives are gay or married, or so very often both. But I get it. I get Roger Ailes' pitch. It's a form of grooming. Get the young fillies hooked to that sweet, sweet diet of older conservative male, that cocktail of masculinity, cultural grievance, Lipitor, vague sense that this isn't real music, and that defensive backs no longer know how to tackle. Oh, and the general, Averdepois. Oh, I love it when you speak French, Tony. Call me Judge Tony. So that's Roger Ailes, a man whose overall physical shape is reminiscent of porridge, yet who assumes he'll be catnip to female underlings. And then there's Bill O'Reilly. Fox has paid off at least five women who've accused O'Reilly of harassment. A sixth, Wendy Walsh, held a press conference today to discuss O'Reilly's tactics. O'Reilly offered Walsh a spot as a regular contributor, then immediately invited her back up to his hotel room. When she said that wasn't a good idea, let's just stay in the hotel bar, Bill, O'Reilly, according to Walsh, began begrudging the price of water. But he got very hostile very quickly. Uh, He told me flat out, forget any career advice I gave you. He told me, he complained about the Iodora soda water, and he complained about the cost of the soda water, and said, I wonder what they're charging for a cup of water here. He told me my bag was ugly. He goes, that's the ugliest bag I've ever seen. Hey, if the bag's ugly, the bag's ugly. O'Reilly is a no-spin zone. Soon thereafter, Walsh's O'Reilly Factor appearances were canceled. Now she's coming forward, or rather, she was contacted by New York Times reporter Emily Steele, who actually scanned old O'Reilly Factor episodes and took notes on which attractive blonde women suddenly stopped appearing on air, called them to see if they've been sexually harassed off television, and found out, at least in the case of Wendy Walsh, the answer was yes. Walsh is not asking for money, but she does want Fox to be investigated. The Times has documented that the O'Reilly tally amounts to $13 million in payments over the years. But when you consider that his show rakes in $178 million, and that was only in 2015, presumably he made more money when the ratings of all cable news were up last year, you see this is just a minor cost of doing business for Fox. Ruining lives, at least for a time, yeah, but there's a ledger item for all that. Wolf Blitzer has a special beard trimmer budget. NBC presumably has to pay an ophthalmologist to battle Chuck Todd's chronic eye languor. Fox was apparently setting aside a little each month for the next time O'Reilly and Ailes got horny. Hey, look, Fox endorses the oxymoronic ideas of clean coal and unborn personhood. Now we find that they simply have a budget item for pussy hounds. On the show today, I spiel about Trump's base. To quote the poet, base... How low can you go? But first, former GOP consultant and erstwhile and possibly future chronicler of all things Trump.
Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Trying to figure out Donald Trump's motivations, it's, it's crazy making. I mean, is it three-dimensional chess, five-dimensional chess? Has he found new dimensions? Is it some form of Parcheesi that a foreign government is paying him emoluments for? In the end, it might not even be worth trying to figure out if all the distractions are by design or just fits of peak. Because, you know, he could get impeached in a couple years or we could all be blown up thanks to his actions. So it's an incredible waste of time here on Earth, an inverse of Pascal's wager. So I am not going to get into what do you think Donald Trump's motivations are. What I am going to do is ask the following question. What about every other Republican in Washington, D.C.? And who better to ask that to than Mike Murphy, veteran campaign manager? And Mike, is the podcast up, coming back? What's the deal with Radio Free GOP? Radio Free GOP, we took a little hiatus after the election. We did the self-incrimination uh, episode right afterward because, of yep. course, I predicted the thing all wrong. And I said that I, I wanted to give... Uh, President Trump some time to succeed or at least to elevate to the office, being the starry-eyed idealist that I am. So we've taken the first 100 days off, and then we have a decision to make coming up in April. So uh, I, I've been very gratified by all the attention I've gotten. People saying, bring it back, bring it back. But I didn't really want to pile on out of the box. I wanted to give him a chance. And I have to admit, I've been reaching for the microphone and the shovel to dig up the <laughs> transmitter because uh, the, the behavior so far has not been encouraging. But uh, we're at a 100-day point, I'm going to make a decision. Well, do, do you feel that the 100-day uh, mark was set before you realized that Trump would redefine days? And so day 70-whatever feels like day 7,000? Yeah, it's like base 814 math. You yes. know, 10 days <laughs> felt like 100 days. Um, but, you know, that was the pledge. It also gave me a little time off. You know, there are a few things going on, and then I'll make a, I'll make a decision at 100 days. It was good to take a little break from it, too, because otherwise it'll, it'll totally take over your life. And I really don't want to be the frothing, angry, ranting about uh, the president all the time guy. It's just too exhausting. Yeah, no, uh, I, I agree. In fact, I think a lot of Listeners to my podcast have even told me I had to take some time off. Uh, maybe they're still taking time off, but they've come back into the fold. So that's good for listeners, too. But what I wanted to ask you was, when will we see real Republican defections? Uh, we have definitely seen John McCain, Lindsey Graham on some issues saying that they will toe the line. But when are we going to see um, Republicans in the Senate, Republicans in the House just standing athwart Trump and shouting no? Well, you've had a little of that in the House with the Th Freedom Caucus, so they tend to stand athwart everything. I think it'll evolve. It's more of a private than public thing. I mean, all my liberal friends, you know, I live out here in Los Angeles, so I walk down the street and I see a level of Democratic mobilization I've never seen before. They're literally beating their dream catchers into eye-poking sticks on every corner. But uh, they would love kind of the third act to an Aaron Sorkin movie where yeah. the Republicans all stand up, sing the national anthem, and surround the White House. And politics doesn't work that way. I mean, first, the Republicans have a policy agenda that President Trump at least theoretically supports 
supports and they want to get it enacted. So they're going to have a lot of patience to kind of nudge and move them in the right way. But privately, and, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the party, there's growing and building frustration at a level I've never seen before uh, with the White House and with the president. Now, I think after the ACA repeal troubles in the House, there's going to be a reset to a new agenda, and that's the president's great opportunity to try to get everybody back on board or face, I think, growing Republican resistance that will become more of what you're asking about, more public. And you're seeing it first in the Senate. But I would tell you, they're, uh, under the surface, there's a lot of concern. And people just aren't being gratuitous about it because they've got their own primary politics to work. But uh, it's building, and it's kind of up to the president. If he, he becomes kind of a functional Republican presidential person, then it'll get better for him. If not, he's you know, putting himself in a really bad situation I don't think he can sustain. Claire McCaskill, in uh, comments at a dinner, I think it was, said that John McCain told her that once his approval drops five more points, we're going to see defections. Now, maybe McCain said that not literally uh, once that Gallup poll crosses the threshold. I mean, it is in only the mid-30s now. I think Gallup's the worst approval poll for him, though they've been polling approval the longest time. I don't know that McCain, in other words, actually means once they actually see the poll, but once they sense him getting just a little more unpopular, even on the national level, that's when we see a break. Do you think that assessment is correct? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Polls in the Washington Beltway are kind of the gravity force that everybody makes decisions and holds everything together on. And the more the president's polls decline, the less he's perceived as strong, the more emboldened people get. And on the Democratic side, in particular, the more incentivized they get to kind of go after them. Though, you know, there's no downside to these Democrats, so they're, of course, going to be the, the loudest critics. I think people shouldn't remember, though, that President Trump is also a voracious reader of polls, so he'll notice it too, and I'm sure he's stomping up and down the hallway saying, get me a win. I don't like this. I mean, he'll take action. So for all I know, a year from now, you'll see, or even six months from now, a whole new set of faces in the White House. Dick Morris will be rolling into town because the president wants success, and he's willing to doctor shop and change up almost everything to get it. So it's a mistake, I think, to think that Trump will sit at the bottom of the polls and do nothing and just let the situation get worse. He has that card to play, for sure. Yeah, yeah, the President of the United States, it's the biggest bullhorn in the planet, and he can use it. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people are, are taking the hint he's been making off the frustrations he's had with the Freedom Caucus and others in the House that he's going to reach out to Democrats. And he's got people around his orbit, his daughter, his son-in-law, who are frankly more connected to Democratic politics than Republicans. So I think they may try to run that trap. The, the challenge they're going to have is... Trump is very much a creature of occasionally brilliant tactics. He's not really much of a strategist. So if he was always going to wind up trying to make deals with Democrats to get around Republicans he has ideological conflicts with, he shouldn't have spent the first two weeks of his presidency making himself so radioactive on the Democratic side that if you're a Democratic poll and you're seen next to him, you get a primary the next day. Because, you know, everything comes in twos in politics, and for all the energy in the Republican Party, there's huge energy in the Democratic Party, particularly on kind of what I would say is a Republican, the loony left, and they're not going to tolerate people, even if Trump moderates, making deals with them. 
So Trump's really kind of boxed himself in. On politics, uh, his policy positions, such as they are, are not that far right. They're somewhere maybe around the most conservative Democrat or uh, a John McCain type. But that doesn't matter because on personality, not, not just the decisions he make, but I think on personality, he has picked so many fights. I think about if I were Chuck Schumer, um, and I, I re- remember those tweets where he mocked me crying fake tears, I would never want to give this guy anything. And I'd know maybe uh, it would be good for my constituents and my platform if we had an infrastructure bill. But I think Trump's just created another hurdle, not just the actual assessment, oh, uh, uh, it will give rise to primaries, oh, we'll be normalizing Trump, but just an actual visceral hatred of the guy that, well, you know um, how politicians operate. Some hold on to that a long time and some let it go. Oh, yeah. No, I had a candidate once after we won a tough election, heard his opponent was moving out of the district, and he asked the treasurer of the campaign as a week after we won in a really hard-fought year-long battle royal. Um, he's moving out. Is the house for sale? Yes. How much money do we have in the campaign fund? X. Buy the house, burn it down. <laughs> so, you know, it. Uh, yes, it is not a business without grudge collectors of incredible talent. Uh, and that's the larger point I'm trying to make. If the president had a strategy of eventually triangulating to some D's on the more centrist stuff that he's for, even stuff that makes some Republicans nervous, at least historically, then the scorched earth stuff out of the box to become, you know, so so uh, much of the focus of Democratic anger, uh, you know, kind of warps everything or even cold political calculations may be hard for Democrats to make. So, yeah, he's in a real box, but you don't underestimate the power of the president of the United States to be able to change course, particularly a guy like this who is not an ideologue at all. Mm-hmm. His, his ideology is success and the brand of, quote, winning. Well, you know, we were promised unlimited winning during the campaign, and I think we've, we've had all the winning we can take, and there's going to be a big reset. Whether or not it works or not is going to be the big question. Okay, we talked about perhaps personal animus getting in the way of a deal that Trump could make with Democrats, but what about political calculation? Uh, it, let's say Trump gives them some sort of infrastructure plan that looks a lot lot like their trillion dollar infrastructure plan that they put out. Uh, I'm sure that there is there will be enough discrepancies that they could point to that as the reason they don't vote for the bill. They won't perhaps be seen as hypocrites for opposing it. Do you think that there is a good argument to be made? Just oppose them. It doesn't matter if, you know, on this one, we don't get a policy that we'd normally want. Oh, yeah. Look, I think the Democratic political argument is going to be just completely deny him everything, let him implode. The more trouble he creates for the country, the better we will do politically. The problem is you do have some Democrats, particularly in the Senate, who are in tough states that Republicans carried in 2008, you know, that carried in the presidential election, up for re-election, and they could be in dealing mode. So in the Senate, you can kind of see a path. You also, the infrastructure lobby has a lot of power, um, and they have a good case that, you know, the civil engineers keep grading our infrastructure worse and worse every two years. And so there's a huge public policy need to actually do something. Don't you get the sense when you see those studies that they're just so reluctant to give it an F? It's like a D, then a D minus, then a D minus minus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. D double minus, <laughs> right. yeah. D Canadian minus, like, yeah. No, no, like I the agree. Kind of, it's the um, kind of grade that will keep you eligible to play for Calipari at Kentucky, but nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Note to the parents: need to talk to you. Right. Um, yeah. So no, it's true. But 
So in the Senate, you can see the politics of maybe getting an infrastructure deal done, although the other problem will be the Republican deficit hawks. And this is an interesting thing about Donald Trump. He's never been the kind of traditional Republican austerity guy. And so he likes the expensive stuff because it's popular. He doesn't talk about cutting you know, expensive entitlements. So there's going to be again, ideological resistance to a huge infrastructure spending bill, particularly if it doesn't have, you know, Davis-Bacon reform and other things the Republicans want to control kind of why it costs a trillion dollars to build 20 feet of highway now. So there's plenty of things for that to stumble over, but, but infrastructure has some attractiveness. In the House, the Democratic House caucus, frankly, looks a lot like a Democratic version of the Freedom Caucus. They're, they're going to be in pure opposed mode, and their politics, except for places that might get huge infrastructure projects, are going to be pretty much against. And the Democratic political hacks are all going to be saying, don't give them an inch. Just squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. So um, it's going to be the battle between a few senators who have their own interest, the the fact that we need to get some infrastructure done, fiscal hawks on the Republican side or not for spending a ton of money without some other spending cuts that are unpopular. Trump being a populist, he's never that interested in that. Though his first budget, you know, surprising some people, including me, does have a lot in it. We'll see what, how much he wants to fight for it. So it's kind of is a three-dimensional question, but the simple person answer is I think they're going to try to oppose him like crazy. And finally, if you're a Democrat seen as wheeling and dealing with uh, Donald Trump, as I said before, you're going to buy yourself a primary now because the primary voters on the Democratic party have no illusions about how they feel they they want you know war yeah lastly i want to ask you a couple questions about the filibuster and judge gorsuch um i think that the democrats are going to try a filibuster and i think that mitch mcconnell will then say uh that's it there's no 60 vote threshold uh, it's going away for even supreme supreme court justices the argument is if the democrats hold their fire they'll somehow be able to use it in the future. I don't really even understand the argument of holding your fire or keeping your powder dry. Do you? Yeah, well, the, the argument is basically that Gorsuch, who's, I've got to say, is a Republican, a judge I think would be excellent on the court, does not change the ideology of the court. So therefore, are we going to start a nuclear war in the Senate with the nuclear option obstructing him? If our only argument is, oh, we're mad at Trump, we don't like him. Now, I can see the Democrats trying to start a nuclear war if another justice leaves the court who's one of the more liberal justices and Trump tries to replace that that seat with a conservative moving the court. Then then you can make maybe an argument that this is worth the most obstructive tactics ever because we're really fighting for something. So I think the only reason the Dems are talking about that with Gorsuch now, who does not change the makeup of the court, is they're so terrified of their base and their Elizabeth Warrens and their primary voters, and their Bernies, that they feel they have no choice. Under normal Washington rules, they blink on Gorsuch because it's really not that much of a change. It's not that much of a cause. But emotionally, the Democratic Party is in such a froth, I think they're afraid of their own primary voters. So it could actually happen. Well, it's like a game of chicken, except the Republicans are driving a Mack truck and the Democrats are driving a Schwinn. I mean, it seems like the Republicans have a nuclear option. It seems like the Republicans have all the cards. And I guess my question is... If- yeah, no, the Republicans have the power to do it. The question is, do the Democrats decide to fight the proverbial you know, nuclear land war in Asia over a choice that doesn't really change much on the Supreme Court, or do they wait, which is the smarter move, to 
say we're going to try to pressure the next pick if a Democrat or a liberal seat on the court opens up uh, to try to affect the choice and push it more to the center ideology. So basically they're trying to fight World War III over peanuts right now, which is dumb, and they're going to lose. Right. But I I guess in a percentage term, I think there's a 99 point something percent chance that McConnell goes nuclear, you know, does away with a 60 vote threshold for Gorsuch. But in the future, what percent chance do you think that he would allow it in the justice that sways the court scenario? Well, it, it'll come down to the, the the justice and do they want that fight. But once precedent is set, you know, once it becomes a tool in the toolbox, I think it gets used. Mm-hmm. So I don't think McConnell wants to use it on this. I think he operates under the usual kind of Senate history, which is, come on, we're not changing the court. This shouldn't be a controversial thing. He's a strong nominee. But the politics on the Democratic side are making that impossible. Mike Murphy, longtime GOP consultant and Radio Free GOP is in repose, but who knows, could be dug out. We've got 30-something days. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. President Trump's approval ratings are down. He came into office as the least popular president since they did polling, and he's gotten a little less popular. He's engaged in feuds and investigations, and polls show they turn off most of America. But his base loves it. And that might be enough for Trump. It's held out as a saving grace, or the one aspect of an erratic and seemingly self-destructive behavior pattern that is working. Here's Michael Graham on Face the Nation yesterday. This feeds their notion that you can't get a fair break. They watched what happened with Hillary Clinton and they feel like you never pushed as hard when the woman had classified information literally on a computer in her basement and you couldn't get serious with that. Now, here you are nitpicking about was it spying or was it inappropriate leaking in that story. I don't know that it's a winner for Trump, but like you said, for right now, that's feed, his base is feeding off of that. Appealing to the base. It's the last remaining rationale for his strategy. But I think that's backwards. Base pandering doesn't make his strategy seem rational. It makes what would otherwise be irrational outbursts seem like strategy. There are several problems with appealing to the base and only the base. One is definitional. If they're your base, they're already with you. That's what makes them your base. Of course you appeal to them. Appealing to your base is treating your family like family. Every canceled TV show appealed to its base. Problem was, there wasn't enough of their base. And it's the same with political bases. Sure, a base can be ignored and taken for granted. And then, yes, like a statue, if your base crumbles, you will fall. But also like a statue, having a strong base doesn't mean you'll go anywhere. We talk about a politician's base sometimes as if they're members of a distinct demographic or interest group. You'll hear reporters talk about base like they're Latino voters or union workers. But a Latina voter can't just change her mind and become un 
Yet a member of Trump's base can indeed debase herself, though some would say she already has. Here is some analysis from Fox. Political low-hanging fruit, jobs, regulatory reform. And we certainly expect to hear a great deal more about those issues this week as the White House tries to reassure the president's rattled base following Friday's setback on health care. In fact, the president seems to... Rattle the base too long and it will fall apart. When you think about it, a president wants to transcend his base, or at least transcend the base he starts off with. A president certainly wants to transcend the explanation, well... That thing he did appealed to his base. Because if you grow your base, if it becomes the majority position of the country, at that point, it's no longer your base. It's the will of the American people. I've been guilty of this too, you know, saying, well, it appeals to his base as an explanation. When asked on a TV show, why is Trump doing that? One has the tendency not to blurt out the more obvious answers that might come to mind. Well, he's a uh, thin-skinned, simpering a-hole. That is not the kind of analysis that gets you invited back. But I also think there's a reason why punditry is filled with more talk of base than a Charles Mingus symposium. Huh? Huh? Jazz medium cut? Huh? Anyway, it's because there's a time when appealing to one's base really matters, and that time is the primary. The Republican base and Democrat base, they are the key to locking up the vote. Now, it seems to me that Trump is still operating from this playbook. In fact, he's conducting his presidency like it's still the primary. You write off anyone who's not on your side at the moment. You scream the loudest, wackiest things to get the most attention in a crowded field. And you focus on winning the news cycle, not the issues. You never have to build a piece of legislation in the primary. And Trump hasn't shown that he actually knows how to do that. I do not see how antagonizing the Freedom Caucus is a smart move for him. I do not see how belittling individual Democrats, who you then say you have to work with on infrastructure, works for him. And since Trump has only thus far appealed to his base, it remains to be seen if he even has it within him to successfully appeal to those who aren't already fervently for him. He's barely even tried. All humans are biased towards tactics that have worked for them in the past, Trump only more so. He has never had success appealing to people who aren't already on the Trump train. And because he's never been successful doing that, he's largely stopped trying. And sometimes I think that Trump's specific base is anathema to progress. It seems what his base, which is about a third of voting Americans, seems to desperately want is to belittle most of the other two-thirds of America. Oh, and one more point. It's not as if playing to the passions of one's supporters has no countervailing effect. Polls show that the intensity of voters who oppose Trump is twice as great as those who support him. Rasmussen's latest figures, 27% strongly approve of Trump, 46% strongly disapprove of the way he is performing. So to contradict a great American, Miss Megan Trainer, so talented... It is indeed not all about the base. You knew I had to say that sometime. And that's it for today's show. Chris Brube produces the gist. He thinks that the last 70 days has felt like like 270 days, but that the next 30 days might feel like only six or seven days, but also that the time between Christmas and Our Lady of Guadalupe Day will feel like negative nine days. So we're all cool. Mary Wilson, just producer, has a theory that this all makes sense since we've been on Venus where a day lasts 243 Earth days. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a deadline of April 30th, or as they call it on Venus, noon. Andy Bowers will stop being chief content officer of the Panoply Network when John McCain 
quietly whispers to Clara McCaskill that his Gallup rating is down five points. The gist, I feel this year has been like three score, a fortnight, and two jiffies. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.